If you could turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. I've been doing this series on Christ's seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, and last week I just finished the last church, Laodicea. And uh, that's about as far as I thought I'd ever go into preaching the book of Revelation, because the further you get into Revelation, the weirder it gets. But as I was thinking through uh, what I wanted to preach this week, I looked at the next section, uh, chapters 4 and 5, and I just saw that they were far more connected to Christ's message to the seven churches than I ever realized before. And that's just one of the amazing things about God's word is we can study it and we can, we can read it, and yet, yet there's continually new things and fresh things that we're seeing in God's word. In Revelation chapter 1, Christ introduced himself in all his splendor. And then in 2 and 3, we get the seven letters to the seven churches. These seven letters were written to real churches with real problems and, and strengths and weaknesses. And then Christ writes these letters, not just for these churches way back then, but for all churches of all time, for our church now. And as we looked at these churches, we were challenged to look at ourselves. But now that we've finished studying these seven churches, uh, as we look back at these as a whole, I think we'll find that uh, even though they look different in lots of ways, they actually have a lot in common. All seven of these churches are called to faithfulness in Christ. And this is despite great temptation and great pressure to compromise their faith. And though this pressure to compromise looks different in each of these seven churches, there's really two sources of temptation to unfaithfulness. And those two sources are fear and pride. The churches of Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Philadelphia all are facing incredible persecution. In fact, in, in some of the churches like Pergamum, people have already been put to death for the cause of Christ. And in order to follow Christ faithfully, they risked an awful lot. They risked financial ruin. They risked being shunned by their community. They risked imprisonment and even death. And, and so you can imagine how easy it would be in the face of all that persecution to be fearful and even maybe to compromise your faith in order to avoid that persecution. And that's exactly what we see happening in the churches of Pergamum and Thyatira. Pergamum compromises on their doctrine in order to be more acceptable to the culture around them and Thyatira compromises on the purity of their church in order to avoid that persecution as well. So the first temptation to unfaithfulness to Christ is fear, but the second temptation that we see in these churches is pride. The church of Ephesus seems to become so proud of all their works and their teaching that they had actually abandoned their first love for Christ. The church of Sardis seems to have been so caught up with appearances and in their good reputation that on the inside they were actually spiritually dead. And we looked at Laodicea last week and saw that they were so confident in their possessions, so confident in their wealth, felt so self-sufficient that they didn't even think that they needed Christ. And yet to each of these churches, whether they are struggling with temptations to pride or temptations to fear, we see that Christ calls them to remain faithful and to conquer and to conquer in the same way. 
The solution, whether you are fearful or prideful, is to know God and his glory better. We talked last week about how you can't stand before the wonders and the beauty of Rocky Mountain National Park and say, wow, look at how great I am. And so the solution, if you are prideful, is to know God better, to see him in his glory That's what Laodicea and Ephesus and Sardis needed that, to see the magnificent of God and in light of that beauty and might to recognize how insignificant and small and dependent on God they truly were. But if you're tempted to fear and and compromise like Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira in Philadelphia, the solution is also the same. They need to see God in his glory, God in his goodness, and his might to know that he is on his throne ruling above all those things that they fear, all those people that they're worried about. They're all under the power of a mighty God who loves them and has made them his children. And so what can man do to us if we have a God like that? The cure to pride and to fear is to see God for how big he truly is But unfortunately, as I've been thinking about this text, I think the problem often is that the God we worship is far too small. And when we worship a small God, when we've shrunk him down to our level, it's easy to be afraid. Maybe you're afraid this morning. You're worried to death how you're going to pay your bills. You're, you're scared of the loved ones, uh, that, that something might happen to them. You have all these worries, all these, all these fears that are rolling around in your mind. And what you need, more than a solution to all those problems, more than extra cash in your bank account, is you need a bigger God. And maybe this morning, you're, you're not wrestling with fear, but you're battling with pride. So easy to look down on those around us, to feel like our accomplishments and our resources are of our own making, and and we don't really need anybody else. We don't even need God. And if that's you this morning, you need a bigger God too. This is why Revelation begins in chapter 1 with a portrait of the glorified Christ. And this is why with each of the seven letters, they are given a unique description of who Christ is. And each of the letters ends with promises of the rewards in heaven that Christ will give them if they persevere. And this is why I think immediately following Christ's seven letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, we get this breathtaking picture of God's glory in chapters four through five. Because the solution to our pride, the solution to our fear, the solution to our half-hearted worship is to turn to chapters four through five and be blown away by the beauty and the magnificence of who God is. And so that's the text we're gonna look at this morning. And my prayer for us is that we can see the glory of God in these chapters and we can hold on to these realities and, and not just see it, but believe it in our hearts. And I think if we can do that, we can replace our puny God of our own making for the magnificent great I am of the Bible. Any fear and any pride will fade away. So follow along with me as I read chapters four and five together. 
After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 elders, and seated on the thrones were uh, 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in the front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the 24 living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Our passage this morning gives us a glorious vision of God, not just for these seven churches in Revelation, but for us. And I want to just tell you up front, I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of all the details in these two chapters. And unless you want to be here all day, you should be thanking me for that. There's just too much that is in here. But, but I also don't want to do that because I think in Revelation particularly, we can get so caught up in those, those little details that we, we miss the forest for the trees. And so this morning, what I want to do is give us the forest. And the big picture here, the main point here, is this glorious vision of God. This chapter, chapter 4 and chapter 5, are inexplicably linked. They are both part of the same unit, picturing God in his glory, uh, but they can be divided into two scenes. Chapter 4 comprises the first scene, which focuses on the glory of God, the Father, as he is seated on his throne, Lord of all. And then in chapter 5, we get the second scene, which shifts its focus from the glory of God the Father to the glory of the Lamb who was slain, who by his blood redeems us. And so these pictures of God are, are separated, but they also are brought together at the end, and it shows us just how incredibly amazing our God is. Let's look at each of these scenes in turn. First, chapter 4. As we look at chapter 4, we are to see God the Father seated on his throne, and we are to worship him as Lord of all. At the beginning of verse 4, there's a doorway into heaven that appears that the Apostle John uh, goes through. The voice of Christ calls him, saying, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. It's interesting, we remember in the church of Philadelphia, Christ says he's going to set before them an open door, a door into the kingdom of heaven. And now John is called through that door. And what does he see? He sees a throne. Verse 2, at once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. It's interesting, in Pergamum, they're told they're the place where Satan's throne dwells. And here it's almost as if God is saying, that's where Satan's throne is. Let me show you mine. And so we see this throne, and seated on this throne is none other than God the Father. He is described in this way in verse 3. He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and all around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. It's interesting, we, we don't actually see much of a description of what God looks like, but we see the effect of God's presence on everything else around him. Verse 3 talks about the rainbow around the throne that had the appearance of an emerald. We know that since the great flood, the rainbow was given as a reminder of God's merciful promise never to flood the earth again. And so I, I think part of the reason that is here is to show us that God is magnificent, not only in his might, but in his mercy. The text goes on 
in verse 5, and it says this, from for from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. When we see lightning and thunder, we take cover because we know how dangerous and powerful those things can be, and yet these things are emanating from the throne that God is seated on. Exodus 19.16 tells us that this often accompanies the presence of God when he appears on Mount Sinai and there's thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud so that all the people in the camp as they saw these things trembled. This is a clear demonstration of God's power and might. Verse 5 continues and says there's seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. This phrase is used Earlier in Christ's letter to the church of Sardis, and it refers to the Holy Spirit who is present at God's throne. But verse 6 continues and says, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. There's a few different times in Scripture where we get a glimpse into the throne room of God, and, and, and often we see, like in Ezekiel and Exodus 24, there is this sea of glass that surrounds God's throne. We know the incredible power of the sea, of the ocean. We see how it has ripped ships in half. We see how it sends tsunamis that, that wipe places off the map. And, and even today, with all our technology, all our equipment, all the things that we have, we are no match for the power of the stormy sea. And yet God sits enthroned, and his throne is placed on a sea of glass, signifying that God has perfect power and authority over the sea, and not just the sea, but all creation. He is the God who calms the seas. No one else can do that. We not only see God's glory in the rainbow of colors, in the lightning, in the thunder, in the sea of glass surrounding those thrones, but we see his glory in the effect on everyone who is around the throne of God. In verse 4, we are introduced to these 24 elders. It says this in verse 4, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, the exact identity of these 24 elders is never specified in the book of Revelation. There's all sorts of different theories about who they are. I read at least six different theories about who these guys are. What seems to be the case for me is that these 24 elders are representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, which together make up the united people of God. These 24 elders, they gain special significance to us when we see how they are described. Christ promises the church of Laodicea that those who conquer will sit with him on his throne. And what are the elders sitting on? Thrones. Christ promises the church in Sardis that for those who conquer, he will clothe them in white garments. And what are the elders wearing? White garments. Garments. Christ promises the church of Smyrna that if they are faithful unto death, he will give them the crown of life. And what do we see on the heads of these 24 elders? Golden crowns. God knows our weakness. 
He knows that we so often struggle to believe in the promises of God. And Christ has promises these seven churches and us some pretty incredible heavenly rewards. And I'm sure it was easy for them and it's easy for us to feel like maybe that's just all a little too good to be true. But here, Christ in his grace gives us a glimpse into heaven and we see these 24 elders wearing the rewards that we've been promised. As if he's saying to us, these things aren't a fairy tale. These things aren't a myth. Here are people who have already received their heavenly rewards and those rewards will be ours if we persevere. What an incredible picture here that we one day will be enthroned with Christ, dressed in white garments of righteousness, having crown of life and dwell in the presence of an infinitely great God. But there's another group that's before God's throne. We hear about them in Revelation 4 through 6, these angelic creatures. And listen to how they're described. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in the front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. As uh, I, I saw something going around on social media where, where someone posted, um, I'm only going to now put a biblically accurate angel on my top of my Christmas tree. And then they showed a picture, and it was uh, one of these things described in this passage. It had eyes all over it and all these wings, and it's just hanging out on the top of the tree. And it, it didn't look good, let me just tell you that. But these creatures that are being described here, these angelic beings are, are incredible. We see John, it seems like he's grasping from words even to describe them. And yet, as terrifying and as strange and, and majestic and powerful as these beings that are seen here and also in Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6, every time we see them, they are worshiping around the throne of God. Look again at verse 6. It says this, In the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around within, day and night, never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Because you see, as strange and unique and majestic as these creatures are, they never cease to declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There is no one like you, God. He is infinitely more wise, more loving, more powerful, unmatched in his perfection and beauty. He is not just greater than us. He is in an entirely different category than us and than everything else in all creation. But now look at what the elders do in verse 9. It says this, And when the living creatures give honor and glory and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before his throne. These elders who are sitting on thrones fall on their faces and worship. 
These elders who have golden crowns on their head, they take them off and they cast them before the throne. And in doing those things, they show that God is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And then listen to the words that they say in verse 11 as they're doing that. They say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. These 24 elders and these four creatures are worshiping God with everything they have. And they're saying that he is worthy of their worship. And not just of their worship, but of ours because he created and sustained all things. All things are made by the power of his hand. All things are sustained by the power of his hand. All things are made for his glory. And so we see this glorious picture of God the Father on the throne, Lord of all. And and what are we to do with this picture? What is our application here? What else can we do but join in with the 24 elders and these four living creatures and worship God who is seated on his throne in heaven, who is Lord of all? If your heart is fearful and anxious, look at the God we have pictured here and worship him, knowing that he is far bigger than any of the things that you're afraid of. If our heart is prideful, look at God the Father enthroned in heaven and worship, recognizing how how small we are in light of that majesty. And follow the example of the 24 elders who fall off their thrones, who who throw down their crowns, and we in the same way should humble ourselves and fall before God saying, woe is me. We have seen a glimpse of the glory of God in the Father enthroned in heaven, and we are compelled to worship him because he is Lord of all. But next, we see that we are to see God on his throne, Lord of all, but also in chapter 5, we are to see Christ, the Lamb who is slain. In this glorious vision that has been given to the churches, in chapter 5, we look up and we see Christ, the Lamb who was slain. At the beginning of chapter 5, we see that there's this scroll that's sealed with seven seals, and this is the unfolding plan of God's redemption and judgment for the future. But the problem in the beginning of this chapter is there's no one there worthy to open the scroll. And because of that, the Apostle John is weeping in heaven. Then look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is clearly a description of Christ, who is the lion of Judah, who is the root of David, who has conquered. But when Christ enters the scene, Pay attention to what we actually see. I don't want you to miss this. He says, Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David who is conquered. But then in verse 6, it says this. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. 
The elder announces Christ as this glorious and conquering lion. In our head, we're picturing Aslan or something like that. But who actually appears is not a roaring and mighty lion, but a weak and helpless lamb. And not just any lamb, a lamb that looks as if it had been slain, that was probably covered in its own blood. What are we to mean by this? Did the elder just get his lines wrong here? Like, oh, shoot, I said the wrong animal. I don't think that's the case. The elder announces Christ as this glorious lion of Judah, and Christ is the lion of Judah. He is magnificent, and he is a conqueror, and yet Christ conquers not as a lion, but as a sacrificial lamb. It is by humbly laying down his life and being slain that Christ accomplishes the greatest victory this world has ever known. And it's because of this he is worthy to open the scroll. In verse 7, Christ, the lamb who was slain, takes the scroll from the Father's hand. And then the four living creatures and 24 elders who have not ceased to worship God, the Father on his throne, fall before the lamb. And this is what they say in verse 9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The scene continues to build, as now it's not just the 24 elders, and it's not just the four angelic creatures, but myriads of myriads of angels join in chorus. And here's what they say in verse 12, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We see in verse 11 of chapter 4 that God the Father is worthy to receive worship. And why is he worthy to receive worship? Because he is the creator and sustainer and Lord of all things. But then in chapter 5, we see the Son of God is worthy to receive worship and honor and all glory and power, not because of that, but because he was slain. Because by his blood, he redeemed people from every tribe and every nation and every people and tongue. And so we are called to worship the lamb here. We see this picture of Christ who was slain, who purchased us with his blood. And what are we to do with this picture? What else can we do except fall before him like the 24 elders and like the four angelic creatures and like myriads and myriads of angels and say, worthy are you to receive all glory and honor and power. And if our hearts are ever fearful or anxious, we look to Christ, the lamb who was slain, and we worship him knowing that he shed his blood to save our souls. What tremendous love is demonstrated there. Do you really think he will purchase you with his blood and then he's going to give up on you? Not a chance. And if we are prideful and self-assured, we look at the lamb who emptied himself by taking the form of the servant, by being born in the likeness of men, by being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And how can we remain prideful in the face of humility like that? 
What a glorious picture of God the Father enthroned in heaven as Lord of all and Christ our Redeemer, the Lamb who was slain. And there is no other response but to worship. But the scene isn't over yet. This picture of the heavenly throne room of God has continued to build until in verse 13, it crescendos into this grand finale. And verse 13 says this, and I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. We've been given two pictures in this text of God and his glory. We see the Father enthroned in heaven, Lord of all, and we see Christ the Lamb who was slain. And now at the finale here, those two pictures are brought together as one. It is incredible to serve and worship a God who is enthroned in heaven and who sovereignly rules over all things. And it is a delight to worship a God who in humility and love that we can't even imagine suffers and dies to save us. But even more amazing than that is that we serve a God who is both. Our God is triune, one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in his triune nature, he is infinitely above us, far more marvelous and wonderful and powerful than we could even imagine. At the same time, that same God became flesh and drawn near to us and saved us by humbling himself and dying on the cross to redeem us from destruction. What a glorious God this is who is both sovereign king and suffering savior who is infinitely higher than us and the God made flesh who is all powerful and yet he can sympathize with us in our weakness who is creator and sustainer of all life and yet he died to save us. He is worthy of all honor and glory and power and yet he bore our shame on the cross. He is the Lord of all and the lamb who was slain and one day all creation, no exceptions, will fall on their faces and worship and exclaim to him who sits on the throne and the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever, amen. Truly, our God is holy, holy, holy. There is no Nothing else that could come close to this. We can't even imagine a greater God than this who is the Lord of all and the Lamb who was slain. Albert Einstein was one of the most brilliant minds that this world has ever known. And yet he was skeptical of organized religion. Charles Mincer, who's a a scientist, uh, wrote in a journal article uh, about why he thought this might be, and I, I want you to listen closely to what he said. The design of the universe is very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe this is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as a basically very religious man. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they were just not talking about the real thing. 
My guess is that he simply felt that religions he had run across did not have proper respect for the author of the universe. Carl Sagan, a famed astronomer, actually said something very similar. He said this, a general problem with much of Western theology is that the God portrayed is too small. These men saw the wonders of creation and then compared that to what we say about God and concluded that if there was a God, he had to be far bigger than the one that we talk about. What a tragedy that is. And this morning, we have seen in Scripture this glorious picture of who God is. And when we see the glories of this passage and we examine our life, we find that the God we serve, for many of us, is far too small. He's the God who helps us with our problems. He's the God who is our co-pilot. He's the God who we make part of our life over here and, and who will serve as long as it doesn't cost too much, who will pray to when we're in a fix, who will obey when it's convenient to us. And the way that we speak about him, the time that we devote to him, the amount that we treasure him is nothing short of blasphemy because that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God who is enthroned in heaven, Lord of all, and that's not the God who is the lamb who was slain out of love for us. No wonder we're fearful or prideful or complacent or given to sin so easily. We have traded in this magnificent God of Scripture, the one true God for this puny little God of our own making. And what the churches of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamon and Thyatira and Cyrus and Philadelphia and Laosia and what our church needs most is not to have our problems solved, not to have temptations removed, but we need to see God for who he is in all his glory. He is Lord on his throne. He is the lamb who is slain. And if we can grasp that reality of how massive God really is, only then will we give him the all-consuming worship that he deserves and that he calls us to. So my prayer for, for my own soul, my prayer for us this morning is that God would help us to see him for who he is. If he does that, imagine how our lives would change. Imagine how ridiculous it would seem to be worried about anything when we believe in a God like this. Imagine how foolish it would ever be to be prideful in the face of this sort of majesty. This is the God of Scripture. This is who God is. Is. He is the Lord on his throne. He is the lamb who was slain. And may God help us see him for who he is because if we do, our lives will never be the same. Please bow your heads as we pray together. Heavenly Father, what a glorious picture of you we've seen in your word this morning, the Lord of all and the Lamb 
who was slain. And now we pray that you would help us to believe what we've seen and heard. To not settle for these puny, half-hearted pictures of God who, who isn't really worthy of all our devotion, but to see you for who you are. We pray along as Paul did for the Ephesians that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we might know the hope to which you have called us. What are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe? We pray that you would strengthen us so that we could comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We pray that you would remove the scales from our eyes so that we could see your glory. Lord, I pray if there are any here who don't know Christ, that they would see in this text that this, this is a majestic and glorious and powerful God. And if they do not repent and believe, this is the God who will come to them in wrath. And I pray they would repent and believe and trust in you. And I pray for all of us as we have been convicted of ways in which we have shrunk you down to fit our own convenience, that we would be convicted by this text that we would be reminded and we would constantly go back to Scripture to see who you are and, and constantly correcting our view with the truth and reality of your glory and your might and your power. We pray, Lord, that all of us, as with these angelic beings, as with the 24 elders and all the hosts of heaven and all creation would proclaim, worthy is the lamb who is slain and worthy is God who sits on his throne to receive all honor and glory and power and might forever and ever, amen. We pray these things in your glorious and mighty and awesome name, amen.